I'm glad y'all uh, came tonight. I appreciate that. Um, and, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right in after prayer. So let's pray. Uh, Father God, uh, in Jesus' name, we thank you uh, for your love for us and uh, your enabling power to do what you call us to do. Um, Lord, help us to see tonight uh, your truth, not what I think or anybody else thinks, um, but uh, to see uh, what is there in the Bible and, and give us grace. Uh, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I, I announced this topic as divorce and remarriage in the church, and uh, I was asked uh, by a good friend last night, why now? Why did you stop everything to do this? And, uh, and, and there are a few reasons. First of all, um, there is a great misunderstanding of divorce and its consequences in the church, in this church, and in most churches, uh, I would say. I wouldn't condemn everybody because I, I don't know everybody. But, uh, but it seems to be that there's always at least people in every church that have a misunderstanding what that means on any end of the spectrum. But there are people that take divorce very lightly, people take it very seriously, and everything in between. Um, secondly, there's a misunderstanding of God's word on divorce and remarriage. And when I say that, um, just so you understand, I don't come with a haughty attitude. I don't come with a know-it-all attitude because I don't claim either of those I don't claim to know everything, and I pray I'm not haughty about it, anything, even though I'm sure I am. Um, so I, I just want you to understand that because um, uh, there has been new light that has come, come to light in the past 50 years. And by that, I mean ancient text and manuscripts, not of even just scripture, but of society in the ancient days that has shed light on some of this. This was actually... There was a document in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they didn't translate. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was 1947, I believe, somewhere in there. Um, shepherd boys looking for treasure, looking for lost sheep or something, and threw a rock in a cave and heard a breaking, and they found these ancient scrolls. So they got them, and just long story short, they took them, and they got the experts that wanted to look at them. And if, if uh, you don't know, uh, ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek, or the Greek of 2,000 years ago, they didn't even put spaces between the words. So when you were reading a text, you have to understand the language and be looking for how to separate that out. So they took them into private, a private place with scholars, and they started working on them. And it took such a long time to do that because it was so much material there, and it advanced our understanding, pushing the manuscripts back about a thousand years so it was closer to the originals than we'd ever had um, but they were taking so long that conspiracy theories broke out as they always do about everything um, you know generally the truth's just the truth people pretty much know it um, and so when they finally finished their work and put them out they also showed the scrolls. They laid them out there so anybody could read the scrolls. You could see what they worked from and what they got. So if you were an expert and you wanted to look at it, you could say, wait a minute, I disagree here. So it got rid of all the conspiracy theories because they were just totally open and honest, except for one little thing. They found one little thing amongst those scrolls, and they did hide it because it changed people's thinking about divorce and remarriage in 72 AD. It was a written certificate of divorce from a woman to her husband at Masada. Do you know what Masada is? 
That's when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70. A lot of Jewish people went up onto this fortress of Masada, and they managed to live there for two years. And they lived a relatively normal life on top of Masada until Rome finally built a ramp up there. And then they all, they, the priests killed everybody and then killed themselves so that the Romans couldn't take them and claim to conquer them. Well, they found this divorce settlement written by a woman in 72 AD, and they saw how it really worked back then. And they said, this is kind of contrary to what we've been teaching, and they didn't want that out, but it's come out now. So that's helped. Um, the third reason why now is because there's, there has been, in my lifetime at least, uh, and maybe before, but I'm just kidding. You know, history began when I was born, right? That's, that's true of all of us, we think. <laughs> Nothing happened before we were around, obviously. Um, so, so it's really hard for us to go back and look at what's been going on. But in my lifetime at least, if you were divorced, you know, get away. There, were, there was a problem. And many times people that had been uh, suffered through divorce uh, uh, were mistreated by the church. And, and, and I'm only speaking to us. I'm not speaking to those outside the body. I'm speaking to us as the body of Christ. So um, then another, just quickly, why now? Um, I didn't know how to write it down, but now it's come to me. And so I don't have it written in my notes. And I'm not going to hand out anything. Uh, this is just a general uh, talk. Um, but another why now is uh, that I was faced with an issue from a past, from past, and, there, and it's always true. And there was a lot of talk, and there was even talk out. We heard talk coming from not just the person that was asking me, but others. So we began to look at this and talk about this. Well, in the midst of all that, um, I was turned on to a podcast called The Naked Bible, and I recommend it. They just go verse by verse by verse through the Bible. So I was recommended. I pulled it up. I was looking at what they had there, and there was this divorce and remarriage in the church. I went, wow, that's just what we've been talking about. So I listened to it. Uh, it, it was a long, it was about two hours worth, but it takes three hours, two and a half, three hours to cut the grass I cut. So I put my headphones in and my, and my sound deadeners over the top of that. And I listened to it. I was cutting the grass. And it just floored me because I'd never heard some of this stuff before. So I, this is the book of the guy that was talking. His name is David Instone Brewer. Um, and let me just read the blurb on him. Uh, the Reverend Dr. David Instone Brewer is a research fellow at Tyndall House, a research library of, uh, in biblical studies located in Cambridge, England. It is the second largest library in the world of biblical texts. They have, like, the original stuff. He previously served as a Baptist minister. His previous public uh, publications are included, and it gives Elizabeth's publications. He did his Ph.D. in ancient rabbinical teaching, all right? So this guy is like super, super uh, qualified. The publisher of this book, and that sometimes is important, is InterVarsity Press. This is about as conservative a group as you can get. All right? So he challenges a lot of our thinking, but really, I, I listen to that. I've read this. I've been doing other study. And what I realize is we have our focus in the wrong place. Okay? So... I felt, since I was hearing chatter, that it might be good um, if I just stopped everything and all I'm going to do is lay groundwork because I got some caveats. 
Uh, I've got some preconditions I want to lay down. The first precondition is there's no way I can do this in an hour. Okay? I got three pages of summarized notes. I could go an hour on the first section. Okay? So this isn't going to cover everything. And I'm going to race through it. Um, Another just kind of weird thing. The women's study last week, Janice came home and said, this lady, she was teaching and she was saying some of this stuff that is kind of some new things we understand uh, that, that has come to light. And uh, so that was amazing to me. So in the, in, the, in the world of academics, people are already aware of, so, of some of what I'm talking about today. But I, I want to I uh, also make a very bold statement, all right? So don't quit listening after this statement. I may say some stuff you don't dis- that you don't agree with tonight. That's great. I, you may disagree with me. That's great. Do your own research. Do your own study. The guy who wrote this book said, don't believe me just because this is what I've discovered and what, how I think about it. You need to do your own. And I, I amen that. But I recommend this book, Divorce and Remarriage in the Church. He also has Divorce and Remarriage in the Old and New Testament. But that is a very academic work. So he wrote this one to digest it for us. So this is the little digest of a much bigger book, which is also on my desk, which I haven't tackled yet. Um, and then I'm summarizing this. So you're not going to get a full good thing here tonight. So trust me on that. So here's my bold. So I'm, that's the last time I'm going to say, now I'm going to make a bold statement. Don't get offended. If you get offended, that's on you. If, 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 you, if you hear something, you can talk to me later about it. That's fine. Um, but you ready? Divorce is not a sin. The causes of divorce is a sin. It's not the divorce that's a sin. It's the person who gave a reason for the divorce that is the sinner, that has caused the sin, that is the sin. That right there should just already start shifting your thinking. Because you have an innocent victim of divorce, and in times past, I'm not saying you people, but in times past, they've been mistreated by the religious community or the saved community or the church. Uh, I hate to say the church when I talk about that. That might be a blemish on the church, but that's Christ's problem, not mine. But, but we ought to think that way because there are people that are victims of sin and divorce has been caused in their life without their approval. So are they a sinner because someone did something to them? Of course not. Um, so we, we need to think about that. And then the second and biggest thing is the prior principle when we talk about this issue is not divorce, it's marriage. It's marriage. And in fact, you'll see that's Jesus, what he did, uh, and I'll cover what, what he did. The prior principle is marriage should be until death. But it's sort of like when you do something and then somebody says, you can't do that. Well, I just did it. So obviously I can do it. Maybe I shouldn't have done it. You can get divorced. Maybe you shouldn't have gotten divorced. You see the difference? Because that also applies to some of the texts in Scripture. All right. Now, uh, hopefully I can cover that. But anyway, and again, let me repeat. I cannot cover this in one hour. I told you about this book. That's for honesty. Most of what I'm going to say, I did get from him um, because he has it summed up so well. So I'm just going to jump into scripture now. And I'll make, let me make a couple of broad statements. I don't have my notes, but let me make them. The causes of divorce have not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament till today, as far as what God says about it. 
The marriage vows have not changed since Exodus 21. The same thing that's there is the same thing we say today. Um, There's one thing added back in the Roman days um, by, or by, in the, by the Greek days by the Greeks uh, because the women were uh, having a liberation movement and they didn't like it. So they added to obey to marriage vows. Um, but that was added by Greek people, Aristotle, thinking um, it's not biblical. It's not in the Bible. To obey your husband, you should submit to his leadership. But that doesn't mean just obey. Um, but here are the four gra- there are four grounds for divorce in the Old Testament. So I hope you brought your Bible. The first thing we're going to look at is Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. Um, the grounds for divorce are found in just two passages, actually, in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But I want to show you something in Jeremiah 3 that I'd never thought about. And it was, for me, it was shocked me. I'm not saying I'm going to say a shocking statement. Y'all better hold on. It shocked me when I heard it. So you're going to hear it in a minute. And look at verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 3. If a man divorces his wife. Let me make sure I'm in the right spot. Yeah. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? God is a divorcee. He divorced Israel. Jeremiah 3.1. He said, you left me. You going to come back? I don't think so. Pretty shocking, isn't it? God divorced Israel. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 says a cause for divorce is adultery in a partner. God says, you have gone after other lovers. I'm done with you. Verse uh, 2 and 3. So God then reminds them of their unfaithfulness. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you where. Have you not been ravished? By the wayside you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers that have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. That's some strong language. Y'all are going, <gasps> in church. It's in the Bible, y'all. And this is God speaking to Israel. What he's saying is, You'll take a lover anywhere. That being ravished, you you get what that's a euphemism for. And he says, where have you not been ravished? You've done it everywhere. And the forehead of a horse, you don't have her head covered. He's saying, you just show that, yeah, come on, I'll take you. And so God says in verse 3, so I've withheld rain from you. I've withheld showers from you to get you to repent. And you didn't do it. And so then we see in verses 4 and 5 that the people cry out, but they don't really repent. Have you not just now called to me, my father? You are the friend of my youth. Will you be angry forever? Will, not, uh, will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you've done all the evil that you could. He said, you're, asking, you're calling out to me, but you keep doing what you were doing. You keep going after other gods, other lovers, other, other people, other things. And so... You can't say, I'm sorry, and that's repentance. Repentance is stop doing what you're doing and come back, and they wouldn't do it. And so God says, I'm done with you, Israel. And so now jump down to verse (laughs) 6. 
The Lord said to me in the day of King Josiah, now this is Jeremiah talking, have you, and this is what God told him, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? He's now, Jeremiah's a prophet to Judah, and he's, and he's warning Judah that she's doing the same thing. And I thought, verse 7, after she has done all this, will she return to me? But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. All right, and also another prophet, by the way, Hosea, was called to marry a prostitute to show Israel their sin. She saw all that, uh, she saw that for all the adulteries of the fatherless, of the faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree, yet for all idols. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. So in verse 6, she's warned, 7 and 8, Jeremiah tries to get them to see their sin, but Judah continues in her sin. But God didn't divorce Judah. He only divorced Israel, the northern tribes. Now, look in Deuteronomy 24, and I'll show you the, uh, the grounds for divorce that Jesus was asked about. And you're going to have to hang with me a little bit because, um, again, these laws didn't change and still have not changed. They are still in force. They're still the same. Um, in Deuteronomy 24, and basically verse 1, but we'll look at verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house also, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife, after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, I read it. You can comprehend it. But let me just say it in our modern English. So you have a man, a woman, and he divorces his wife because he finds out that she uh, was, uh, had uh, immorality before they were married or she committed adultery after they were married. So he writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her away. She goes away. Notice she remarries. Let that sink in a minute. She got divorced. She was allowed to remarry because her husband divorced her. Legally, she wasn't bound anymore. But then the second husband dies. God says, that first guy can't take her back. Now, I don't know why he would. He sent her away the first time. Do you remember what Joseph did when he found out Mary was pregnant? He wanted to put her away quietly. He didn't want to make a public, he was going to divorce her. He didn't want to make a public spectacle of her because he found, she'd found no favor in his eyes because he thought she'd committed adultery or fornication. So, a cause for, a grounds for divorce, according to the law, is adultery in one of the partners. Doesn't have to be the woman, but in their, in their day, generally, it was, uh, uh, divorce was the right of a man, but not necessarily of a woman. 
But there are three more grounds for divorce, and those are all in Exodus 21, the same place we get our vows, and we actually get the cause for divorce out of the vows. So in Exodus 21, and, and here are the words for the vows. I wish I could read to you the passage of the book about this because he's showing the changes in language from then to now, but the principles are the same. But look in uh, Exodus 21, uh, verses 10 and 11. If he takes another wife to himself. Okay, so it's a married man. And this is about polygamy. So you got you to kind of follow this. This isn't just the young guy marrying his young wife. And they've never been married before. There's a guy that's married. And he takes on a wife uh, uh, like one of the slaves. He decides to marry her. Like Abraham married Hagar. Okay. All right. So... Uh, Verse 10, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. Talking about his first wife. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So here's what the Bible is telling us there. That if, if a man marries his slave, he cannot deny his first wife what he promised. And what he promised is there in verse 10. And it would be the vows. You would say, I promise uh, to provide food. I promise to provide clothing. I promise to provide affection, physical affection. Okay? So if he didn't do those three things, for any reason of those, she could divorce him. Okay? Or he could divorce her. Because he brought home the food, she had to cook it. He brought home the clothes or the money to buy the clothes. She had to sew the clothes for the family. And they could not deny each other physical affection. So those were the, those four reasons. If one committed adultery or you didn't provide food and shelter, uh, basically food and clothing, food and shelter, and physical affection. So those are the four reasons. All right, now... Those are the same words today. I promise to love, honor, and cherish. Cherishing would be food and protection. Love would be affection. Uh, Honor would be to take care of her, to to be nice to her. Okay? So, because that physical affection, of course, we understand it. The full limit of that is is, uh, sexual intercourse. But it also just includes be nice. (laughs) Hold her hand. Hug her. You know, just be sweet and be nice. Janice said... What, you mean I've had grounds all this time? Um, Because sometimes I'm very grumpy and very quick-tempered, so I apologize. But anyway. Wow, that burnt. Okay. Um, So, after seeing that, now I want you to see Jesus answering the Pharisees in Matthew 19. All right? And, And what this guy says in the preface to his book and all is he'd read all these texts before... He goes off, he gets a PhD in rabbinical teaching out of like ancient texts, comes back and reads it and goes, oh, oh, I didn't see that. All right. It, it's, it's a revelation of, with knowledge, uh, basically. So in, in Matthew 19, and you're all familiar with this. I'm familiar with this. Listen, uh, my understanding was no deeper than yours before I looked at this book. I'm not, again, I'm not hot, being haughty. I'm just... Telling you this is, uh, we got to, so many times we assume what the Bible says, we don't read what the Bible says. 
Okay, we, we read it with our presupposition and then we make an assumption based on what we thought, not on what we read. And there are many cases of that. I won't get into that. Verse 3, chapter 19. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send, and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Make sure I'm on track here. Okay. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. All right, so the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask a question. So you and I have read this our whole life, but you're not Jewish, and you didn't live 2,000 years ago, and neither am I, and neither did I. By the time of Jesus, and a lot of this happened in the intertestinal period, they're looking back there at Deuteronomy and, and Exodus. And there became two trains of thought uh, about, about divorce. And these Pharisees are on one of, one of those sides. And they are on the side of the any cause divorce. Okay, remember that term? At the time of Christ in the Roman world, it was called, um, it wasn't the... Uh, any reason it's um it was divorced by separation and there was a better term for that but anyway you could in the roman society you could just walk out for any reason for no reason you didn't have to have a reason and the amongst the jewish people they said any cause so if your wife just ticked you off you could just divorce her because she just ticked you off and that's one way of thinking the other people were nope it's got to be adultery so they asked Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? That was a legal term, any cause. It wasn't, can he do it for any reason? Just asking a general question. They were asking him a legal question. And I want you to notice how Jesus handled it. He didn't answer the question. He didn't give him an answer, at first at least. He said, that's not the way, it was. That's not the way God intended it. Jesus turns their attention to marriage and says, now, wait a minute. Here's God's intention for marriage. He doesn't answer the question. He says marriage should be lifelong and monogamous. One man, one wife for one lifetime. We've said that before and that is true. Okay? And that's Jesus' answer. It's, now, I'm not taking sides here. Because the other side, there was the any cause side and there was the only for adultery. So the, the food, clothing, all that didn't enter. It was only adultery. Based on Deuteronomy 24.1 alone. Jesus does, never answers the other three. Paul does later. We'll look at Paul in a minute. So they ask Jesus specifically about the any cause divorce. And he doesn't even answer the question. He says, uh-uh. 
in the beginning, it was one man, one woman for one lifetime. That's what God instituted, and that's what you ought to do. You ought to stay married to your wife. Well, that, that of course, didn't satisfy them because they're trying to get something out of Jesus. So they try again in verse 7. Um, there, there's a lot in between, but if, if you go down to verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And look what Jesus said. He didn't command it. He allowed it. It was because of the hardness of your heart. He's, what he's saying is divorce is a compulsory. If, if that you think you have a reason, doesn't mean you have to get divorced. Um, I, I don't want to, I'll just stay general. So a man is married to a woman and she commits adultery and he's a Christian. She's supposed to be a Christian. She commits adultery and he finds out. Does he have to divorce her? No. As Christ has forgiven you, forgive one another. He can forgive her. Now, if she refuses to repent, she continues. He does have grounds for divorce. And let me make a general statement. The offendor cannot initiate divorce biblically. The offended can. In other words, if I'm the one committing adultery, I can't just say, get away to my wife and I'm meant to make that general, so I'm not even going to use my name, our names. So if a man is committing adultery, he can't then look at his wife and say, well, I've committed adultery, so we've got to get divorced to so get away. No, only she can do that. And if she says, no, I want to forgive you and stay with you, he's got to stay, biblically. Okay? Understand that this is what Jesus is saying. You don't have to get divorced. Moses allowed it for the hardness of your heart. And I do want to throw something in here. Uh, because they did say, why Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Did you know that was a protection for that woman? Because the men did throw him away for no reason. And so Moses commanded, you've got to write that out. And that's what they found at Masada, where this woman had a written thing of divorce. And, and it was actually the woman divorcing her husband. And there's a written thing of divorce. So that she could go and go, no, 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 no. Look, see, he messed up. I'm divorced. It's legal. So that she wouldn't come under uh, condemnation and judgment. Um, and she could say, I wasn't the one that did it. He did it, and I've got the divorce to prove it. All right, so there's, there's something else that Jesus is saying here um, because Jesus says here that it is only for sexual immorality. Uh, again, look at what he says. Moses allowed you to divorce uh, your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Uh, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He didn't say every divorced person remarries commits adultery. He said a man who divorces his wife for a reason other than sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So he is, he is agreeing with Deuteronomy 24.1 that sexual immorality is a cause for divorce. But he also says, but that's, that's not the best path to take if there's repentance there can be forgiveness sometimes people won't repent and so there is a right to it but the person has to decide how much they can take about all that um, but that's what we ought to work for now I mentioned uh, these two and I finally found in my notes where it is I left it for here there's these two rabbinical thoughts one was a guy named a Hillel and the Hillelites interpret Deuteronomy 24.1 as 
for any cause and for sexual immorality. They said, you know, sexual immorality or she just doesn't pull her weight. A man can divorce her. But there was another group, the Shamites. And their interpretation was only for sexual immorality in Deuteronomy 24.1. And Jesus agrees with them. But he doesn't take their side. He just says, here's what the Bible says. And I'm with the Bible. I'm with, this is why we told Moses what we told him. All right. Here's why the church became so hardened about divorce. You had these thoughts, and one of those was lost in 70 AD. Because Rome sacked Jerusalem. They had all the rabbis in one room. They're going to kill them all. And one guy escaped. And when he escaped, he somehow got away, got out. And the other idea just died because there was nobody there to teach it. The teachers of it just were gone. So only one of these guys survived. But we see the two of them here in Deuteronomy 19. I mean, Matthew 19, where they asked Jesus this. Paul does cover the other three reasons. So we're in 1 Corinthians now. So please look there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, again, when I'm talking there about Jesus, and I probably should have made a bigger deal about this. These are Pharisees. These are teachers of the law talking to Jesus, the lawgiver. You have to put that in context to understand that Jesus is not an American. Somebody walked up and said, can you divorce somebody for any reason? Now, a pastor gets asked that. What does he say? Well, no. But there's no legal argument there. This is a teacher of the law, a guy that comes up to Jesus as a rabbi and says, can a man, what side are you on? The Hillites or the Shamites? And he said, I'm on God's side. And God said, you ought to marry one woman for one lifetime. Period. Well, then why did Moses say give her a divorce? He didn't command it. He said he allowed it because you guys are a bunch of sinners. It is a relief for a woman who is in a bad situation, actually. So she doesn't have to live with such a loser. Um, anyway, I don't have much respect for those guys. Paul covers other three in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 15, then 26 to 35. So here's, here's the question, and I want to read all 15. Uh, man, uh, I, let me just kind of go, read them as I go through. Verse 1, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, King James, if you're in King James, says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's a misinterpretation of the Greek because of when it was reinterpreted uh, in, in English. And this, again, goes to language and the change in language. And that part of the book is hilarious. Uh, and I'm not going to find it and read it to you, but I'd like to. So it's not no touch a woman. It's don't have sexual relations with a woman. What book are we reading out of? Not the Bible, the specific book. To whom, what city is Paul addressing? Corinth. What do you all know about Corinth? It's the worst city in the Roman Empire. This is Vegas and Bourbon Street and... You know, wherever else rolled into one. This is just as bad as it gets. So, people are being saved out of paganism, out of prostitution, out of temple prostitution, out of just... It, it, it sounds like America today, basically. Uh, where it just, everything is okay, nothing's wrong, you can do anything. And Paul's having to bring in this Christian. And he says, so first of all, don't be out there... Having sexual relations with everybody. 
That's what he's saying in verse 1. He's not just saying, oh, don't touch a woman. He said, don't touch a woman sexually and don't do that except with your wife is what is going to be the conclusion. Verses 2 through 5, then Paul says married couples ought to touch one another and not to deprive each other. Because remember, Exodus, physical affection. And so in verse 2, he, st- he starts out. Um, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. Husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another and catch this, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. You both agree For a limited time. That you may devote yourselves to prayer. So if you ain't praying. Get back in the bedroom. And then come together again. That's what he says. And then come together again. So that Satan may not tempt you. Because of your lack of self-control. So Paul is commanding these people. You get a wife or a husband. And that's where you can be fulfilled. Um, Josh McDowell, back in the 80s, he did a whole purity campaign. And he had t-shirts with funny sayings on it. And one of them was, God said you can have all the sex you want with your marriage partner. Because that's true. He didn't say you can't have sex. He said you just got to have it with your marriage partner. That's what this is saying here. So Paul is covering that physical part. They made a vow so that they owe each other a debt, in a sense. But, and prolonged abstinence leads to temptation... But you can't demand it. You can't force it on the other person. This is, but you can't deny them uh, either. And so the other, it's a mutual submission to one another physically. Uh, if one desires it, then you all do your best to do that for them. Uh, verse 6. Now as a concession. See, some people have the gift of singleness. Not a command. I say this is a concession. It's not a command. Why is he saying that? Both in the Roman culture and the Jewish culture of the New Testament, a man must get married. It was not an option. You had to get married. He is going against the culture, both Roman and Jewish, when he says this. Because the Romans did it because the young guys were being like young guys today, just out there being promiscuous with everybody. And they were afraid that the whole kingdom was going to come apart because these guys aren't settling down and bearing children Similar for the Jewish people, they will be fruitful and multiply. You need to get married so you can have babies so we can survive. I had a good friend uh, from Charleston, but also went to school with him. He came from a Jewish family, um, and his dad, had, his dad was a doctor. And then he said, we didn't have a big house and a lot of stuff because he had eight kids to help replace the six million that died in Nazi Germany. That was his dad's philosophy. Then... He got saved. Then his mom got saved. Then all his brothers and sisters got saved. And his dad would never accept Jesus as Messiah. And so he'd go home and he would observe Passover with him. All this stuff trying to help him out. But the Jewish people, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. So you have to get married. Paul said, no, you don't. And these next few verses, he says, you don't have to get married. It really is hot, Sorry. I'm trying not to slurp it too bad. Um, So, you can be single. There is a gift of singleness. I don't need to go over it much, but he's saying some people are born where they they can't do anything about it. They're not going to be able to, so they are uh, eunuchs from birth. Um, 
But he says, uh, as I wish that all were as I, I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, here's something you need to know about Paul. And I, I've heard this before, but this guy did the research and he confirmed it. Paul was a Pharisee. He sat on the council and he gave his vote to stone Stephen. You had to be married to be on that council. What we don't know is what happened to his wife. Probably more than likely died in childbirth. And then Paul never remarried. But he didn't remarry because he was now devoted. He was first devoted to killing Christians. Then he became one of us. Then he was devoted to, to spreading the gospel. And so he didn't want to be hindered by a wife. So he never remarried. So he says, so I wish all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. So unmarried. And to the widows, I say, it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, why would Paul say it's better for them not to marry? There were two reasons. One is you have more time to spend for God. And secondly, man, times are bad. You won't be able to provide for each other the goods that you were supposed to. There was something going on. So he says in verse 10, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does... She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So to the married believers, catch both those qualifications. You're married and you're a Christian. Don't get divorced. That's it. And if you do, fix it. Get back. Get back together. Don't do that is what he's saying. Now, that's to married Christians. There are other exceptions, and he has to cover that as well. Look at, um, um, yeah, 6 to 9 is about singleness, but look at 10 to 11. If you are married, you cannot use the Roman divorce. It's called, here it is, uh, divorce by separation or by walking out and ending your partnership. So 10 to uh, um, 11, uh, that is what he's talking about. They are, they are Romans living in a Roman city. Where you can just walk out or send her out. Like, get out of my house. Or she could say, get out of my house. And you're divorced. That's it. Paul said, don't do that. You're believers. You stay together. You, you hang in there. All right? So in verse 12, uh, we come to a section that if you have an unbelieving partner and he's willing to stay in the marriage or she's willing to stay in the marriage, don't divorce you. The rest I say, not I, not the Lord. Now, he doesn't mean that God doesn't approve of what he's saying. He's saying, we don't have a direct teaching from the Lord about this. This is what I think as a prophet and an apostle of God. That if any brother, verse 12, has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband's made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife's made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Do you hear what Paul just said? He said, if you're a Christian and, and, or you're married and you become a Christian and this guy or this woman is lost, that marriage is still holy. Because you got married. And in God's eyes, you ought to stay married if the other partner is willing for the sake that you may lead them to Christ and that you can teach your children about Christ. So don't mess that up if you can help it. But then, because they live in a society, people just walked out. He goes on. 
uh, down to verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So you're a Christian in this culture, married to an unbeliever. And the unbeliever goes, nah, I'm tired of being married. I'm gone. What can you do? If you're the Christian, you try to reconcile and keep it together. You can't fix that because it's an unbeliever who just left. You can ask them, please don't leave. Please stay. Uh, you know, I want to stay married to you. I want, you know, let's reconcile. I, I, I'm content to live with you. Stay with me. But if they walk away, you, ha- you can't take it to the church and go, he left me. Well, the church has no authority over a lost guy. So what are you going to do? So he says, so they're not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, don't make a ruckus about that. Let the people be at peace about that. And they can remarry. There's nothing you can do about it. But now look down to verse 26. Just uh, uh, live as if you're a called person. But now jump down to 26 because now he's talking some more about our relationships. Now concerning the betrothed, that's engagement. I have no command from the Lord But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress. Now, I never knew what that meant. Do you know what that means? We can guess. And I always just took it generally. Well, we live in a fallen world. But there was probably a famine or something going on. That would be a more accurate probably happening there in Corinthians. So, in Corinth at that time. There is a present distress. There's some economic problem. There's some problem with society. He says it's better to stay unmarried because it's going to be hard to fulfill the vow of supplying goods to one another. Because you're not going to have any money because you're in distress. The whole economy is messed up. So Paul, Paul is looking for the Lord coming back too, by the way. In these verses, he's like, in this present distress, it'd be better if you just stayed unmarried. It is good for a person to remain as he is. If you are bound to a wife, do not seek to be free. He's like, okay, we we got trouble going on. But if you're married, don't say, well, we better separate because I can't make enough money for us to live on. No, figure it out. Work together. Get it done. Okay. Again, it's very practical. We've made it so, oh, it's very practical. He's like, you're married. Don't add to the problem by sinning, by throwing her away. Stay with her. Work it out. Try to figure it out. Try to get where y'all can get what you need for each other. Get enough food. Get enough goods. So if you're bound to a wife, don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. It's not smart right now. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. It's not compulsory, but you can do it. You don't have to get married. So this is, this is a new deal for them. The Jewish people especially thought they had to get married. And the Romans thought they had to get married. So if you're speaking to a Roman or a Jew, you can say, you don't have to get married. Really? No, you don't have to. You can't be committing adultery everywhere or, or sexual immorality. But you don't have to get married either. But if you can't stand to not do that, then find your wife and get married. So those who marry will, and here's why. Because those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Now, that doesn't mean like, oh, they're going to be aggravating. That means you got to figure out how to take care of each other. And so you're going to spend time and energy on taking care of each other that could be spent on working for the Lord. Paul's so focused on that, that's, that's what he's saying. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. 
he, he saw Jesus coming back. And so from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as those that they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. In other words, don't be focused on worldly things. Be focused on the Lord. He's not saying, if he just finished saying, take care of each other. Stay married. Do that. So then he doesn't turn right around and say, oh, if you're married, just pretend like you're not married. What he's saying is the two of you live to glorify the Lord, not, as, not to help each other as much as together you glorify the Lord. That is the principle that Paul's laying down. So in 32 to 35, Paul is saying, don't neglect your responsibility to give marital support, material support, pleasing them with the things of the world, and devote more time serving the Lord if you are single. He approves of marriage in general. He says Christians should not use the Roman law of a groundless divorce what do we call it today? No-fault divorce. It's the same thing. Um, should not use the Roman groundless divorce. No Christian. Now listen to this statement. No Christian would ever intentionally uh, provide the grounds for divorce. So you got a Christian couple. And the guy goes, man, we can't get divorced. But I don't want to live with her anymore. Hey, babe, you want to have sex? Good. Let's go do that. Comes back. I'm an adulterer. Sorry, we got to get divorced. No Christian would do that. A man who would do that is not a Christian. A woman who would do that is not a Christian, according to Galatians 5. He, would, he or she would not do that. That is evidence that you don't know Christ. You don't know the Lord. You stay married, you work it out, you do all you can do to stay married. Now, by the way, when I was talking about those reasons for divorce, I didn't give you the implications of that. I, I wasn't going to get into to some other things, but time's going to get away from me. Let me just quickly say, number one, if a woman is living under abuse, she doesn't have to do that. He's not cherishing her. He's not taking care of her. He is not providing food and clothing and love. Whenever I am faced with that, I ask the woman, where's your daddy? Because I'll go with him. And if you don't have a daddy or he's not around, I do have a baseball bat and I'll go with you. Because a woman shouldn't have to live under that. It is foolish to tell a woman she's got to live under abuse with a man who's eventually going to kill her. That's crazy. She, he's broken the vows of what God intended. So, hopefully... That'll shock him into getting it right. Maybe that something will happen. But I'm just, I'm just saying that doesn't have to go on. We shouldn't be lighthearted about divorce. Nobody ever has been divorced, even if they're the innocent party, feels good about that. And I guarantee you, a person who has a legitimate divorce and they want to get remarried, they're standing in church and they're making those vows. And in their mind, they are more than likely saying, yeah, I said this before. And they're going to feel guilt. So, what do you do for that? How about repentance? You say, well, it's not their fault. I know. But is there anybody truly innocent? I mean, I've, I've given my wife plenty of grounds for divorce. <laughs> and she's still with me. Thank God. 
Why? Because she forgives. She lives with forgiveness. And I learn and do better. Right? And I hope she could say the same for herself. And she would. So, I I want you to catch that when it comes to divorce and remarriage, as a Christian, you've got to make it work. You cannot abuse. You cannot deny. You cannot ill-treat your mate. And you've got to make it work. The emphasis is not on divorce. It's on how should marriage work. And marriage should work that together we're seeking to glorify God. If the two of us, or two married people, are trying to glorify God, how are they going to treat their mate? They're going to treat them better than if they're trying to treat their mate good or, or nicely. Because I can't glorify God if I'm abusing this, this person who loves me and whom I am one with. I, I'm going to try to go a little further. I'm going to stop at an hour. And if y'all just want to stay, I'll, I'll get more. But So Paul said abandonment is grounds for divorce based on neglect. The husband's neglected you if that person's lost and they leave you. Food and clothing is generally considered material support. And a vow of love is generalized as physical affection. That's kind of Paul's assumptions. Now, let me me help you with till death do us part in marriage. Um, you shouldn't use the Roman, I said, Roman divorce of separation. If, be reconciled if possible. If you're married to unbelievers, stay married. Don't break it up. Um, if an unbeliever walks out, there's nothing you can do. Uh, and it is legally, you're legally divorced. And there was nothing you could do about that. So, therefore, if you cannot bring reconciliation, you ought to try. Since you didn't cause it, you're no longer bound. You're free to remarry. So, widows are also free to remarry. This is at the end uh, of, of chapter 7. I didn't read the verses. But 39 and 40, widows are free to remarry. Con- and now he says something that is against Jewish law. Let me, let me go there and read it just to make sure I'm in the right spot here. Um, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. And he's not talking about, in this, he's not talking about divorce. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. This is a statement to protect widows. But y'all remember the Jewish tradition, right? They even asked Jesus about this. So this woman, the Sadducees asked him. So a woman gets married and her husband dies. So she marries his brother and he dies. She marries that brother. Because that is called the Leverite Law. And that is, it is very important to raise children for the family, for the family name. So if a woman is married to a man, remember Ruth? Her husband died, his brother died. There's no, and, and so Naomi says, or was that it? Yeah, Naomi says, you can go, go away. And she said, nope, I'm gonna stick with you. And so when they got to where they're going, Boaz wasn't next in line because he didn't have any brothers, had to find a close relative. There was one guy that was closer, and he says, you want to marry Ruth? He said, yeah, well, if you do, this is what it's going to cost you. And he went, ah, never mind, I don't want to pay for her. And, and Boaz said, well, can I have the right to marry her? And he goes, sure. And he sells it, and they pass the sandal between them to verify the, the covenant. Paul says, you don't have to marry his brother. You can marry whoever you want, but they got to be a Christian. That's what he says in verse 39. That is a verse for widows 
Not about divorce, not about you got to stay married till one of them dies. That's just saying a, a woman whose husband has died can get remarried. And by the way, in, in Romans 7, um, boy, I really, that would take a lot to get into that. Romans 7 is talking about Christ and the, and the law. It is not talking about marriage. It uses marriage as an illustration, but it's not rules for marriage. It's rules about we are not married to the law. The law, Christ went to the cross and killed the penalty of the law for us. So death has happened with the law so that we can be married to Christ. That's what Romans 7 is more about. Now, there are texts that appear that remarriage uh, is, is denied until a former partner dies. Matthew 19, 5, one flesh would mean that if you visit a prostitute before you were saved, you couldn't get married. Because it says a man that joins himself to a prostitute is one flesh with her. So you divorce the prostitute because you had sex with her to marry your wife. So obviously, obviously, you don't have to wait on the partner to die. You, you're, you, you were lost. You went and visited a prostitute. Now you're saved. You can't go, oh man, but I came one with that prostitute. I gotta go find her and marry her. Now conversely, if you're Christians and you are committing immorality, marry them. Why, why, are you, why are you doing everything but making it legal? Make it legal. Quit playing around. Just get married. All right? You can do that in a day at the courthouse. You want to do something later in the church? That's fine. But go ahead and get married. Matthew 19.6. Let no one separate. In, in Matthew 19.6, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. It does not say man cannot put it asunder. It says he should not put it asunder. Obviously, he can because they do. Uh, in Matthew 19, 9, imply, it seems to imply that you're still married in God's eyes, but that only applies to an invalid divorce based on any cause and not for a biblical reason. So if, if you were married and you just went, ah, I don't want to be married and you got divorced, God says, uh-uh, you're still married. You better, have, you better get that reconciled. You better get back together. That's what he's pushing for. That's what God is pushing for in our lives. So you do have an invalid divorce there. You shouldn't get remarried. Except to that wife. Um, so just want to throw that in there. Um, I, I've already talked about Romans and, and 1 Corinthians 7. So also this. Uh, well, we, we covered that. I'm not going to go back to that. Um, now what about wedding vows and remarriage in the church? We could, we could look at Ephesians 5. Time is, is gone. So I, I'm not going to go there. Um, but I will say... Uh, this guy, he wrote, this is the worst case possible. And I'm going to tell you what it is. He said in that book, the very worst case that could ever happen would be in, inside of a church, two couples, and the man from one of those relationships and the woman from the other start committing adultery with one another and then divorce their mates to get married. And when they marry that other person, the church acknowledges that and marries them. That is an abomination to God. An abomination. It should never happen. And those who do that, do that don't know Christ. Now, if they will repent, that might show that maybe they do know Christ. But they better bring fruit of repentance. 
Now, that's according to this dude. I didn't say that. I read that in the book and went, hmm, pretty interesting. So, what, what should we do? I, I've already said it. Let me emphasize it. We ought to repent. Say, so I'm not divorced. You ought to repent. <laughs> All of us have broken our vows. All of us have done things that we shouldn't have done. Said things we shouldn't have said. Not treated our mate the way we should have treated them. None of us are innocent. None of us. How do I know that? Because you're all people. Everybody in here is a human. We mess up. And we would do a great favor to ourselves and our mates if we take a step back and go, you know what? I'm not everything God wants me to be. And that we ought to be in a constant state of repentance that we need, and so that we are tender and open to God for his grace and his help to help me to love my mate the way he commands me to. I didn't go through Ephesians, but there is a whole list in there of who submits to who and who does what. Now, let me say it very fast. In Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, wives submit to their husband as we all submit to Christ. Husbands love their wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church and died for it. We keep the marriage vows as Christ does. Christ loves us, he feeds us, and he clothes us. Wow, didn't he even say that? Didn't he say, God so loved you, he sent me to save you, and if you will trust me and follow my will, the flowers of the field that are clothed better than Solomon, I'll give you clothes. The birds of the air that don't sow or reap, yet they eat, I'll feed you. I will give you food. I will give you clothing. I will give you love. Christ keeps the marriage vows to us. Isn't that awesome? And in Ephesians, it tells us to love like Christ does. And husbands and wives become one as we are one with Christ. So instead of worrying about divorce and remarriage, if you're a married person, focus on glorifying God in your marriage. May God help us. I, like I said, I can't cover it all in an hour. I got a million questions in my own head now, and I'm sure you do too. We've been an hour. I'm going to pray. So if you want to leave, you can, because what a promise. But uh, if you want to hang out, I'll do my best, okay? Um, I did get to the end of my notes, however, uh, so my OCD is satisfied. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Um, Lord, some of this is new, is new for me to look at it this way, think about it this way. Uh, we don't want to look at it just because this guy said it, even though I believe he's a, a, a great scholar and an honest Christian, and uh, he's trying to help us so that we will help people who are, who are victims of Satan's attacks and and immorality and the sin of this world. Uh, Lord, may we have grace for others as we ask for grace for ourselves. May we show mercy as you show us mercy. That even when we deserve judgment, Lord, we leave judgment to you for you judge rightly. And Lord, we pray that we would, we would love as Christ loved. Lord, help us to not allow sin. Help us to speak against it. Help us to uh, love our friends and 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 fellow believers enough to call them out and say, you can't do that. That's not what God commands. You're to love your wife, love your husband. You're to glorify God together. 
and that we would encourage that and we would teach that and we would, we would model that, Lord. May we be models of your grace and your love. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I didn't make a point of it this morning. I wish I'd have made more of a point of it. I, I did make a point that Abraham was in great grief when Sarah died. But let me just turn it around and put a finer point on it. The dude was married to her for, I'm going to just say, 100 years. And he was broken when she died. He wasn't looking to get away. He loved her. After a hundred years, would that we would love each other like that. Amen. Christ's love is forever. We ought to love each other like Christ loved the church. Any questions? What, did you have something? Okay, you're good. All right. I just saw my wife move. I was like, did you have something? Okay. All right. All right. Well, y'all are free to go if you want to. I'm right here. So.